I love what he says when he says this. Uh, maybe you caught it. Maybe it got past you. We'll put it on the screen. If we believe we can love like Jesus from afar, haven't we rendered the coming of Christ a waste? It's a statement worth pondering. It's something worth really chewing on a bit because the, the nature of Jesus' coming is really all about the incarnation. He, he came in the flesh. Um, incarnation means that he's wrapped in flesh. He wasn't before that. He was pre-existing, eternal, always has existed, always will exist. But when he was conceived, when he became human, he wrapped himself in flesh. And he didn't have to do that, but he did so and he came near. He drew near. John says when he describes the entire birth that he, he wrapped himself in flesh and made his dwelling among us. One translation says that he moved into the neighborhood. The actual literal translation would be that he tabernacled, very important word for the Jewish people, among us. The writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, just like each one of us, and yet he was without sin. So why would he do that? Well, the nature of the incarnation would be that he would identify with us. And so when we look at what's happening all over the world, and then we take a close look at what's happening within the states, or maybe even a closer look at what's happening in Minneapolis, and not just Minneapolis, but in Denver and LA and in New York, and you can list the cities. It's a long list right now. And you wonder, when will it all come to an end, or how will it? And you have opinions about why it's happening and what should or shouldn't be happening before any of the issues, and now especially with things getting worse and tensions rising, and the heat of the summer coming, then we ask this question, what does it mean to put on the flesh of Christ in our relationships, everyone? In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen close. I mean, if you're kind of debating, you're unsure, you're distant or, you know, put God on the shelf for a while, that's a different deal. But if you're a follower of Jesus, the one question that matters most to me and you and all of us that wear the name of Christian is, what would it look like for me to do and act and love and be like Jesus? As John writes, in this world, we are like Jesus. So what does that mean? What, what does that look like? And it takes me back to the very first week of this series, the very first Sunday when we focused in on this verse that Paul writes in chapter 1. While he's in prison, he writes this letter to his friends in Philippi, and he says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, love isn't a wispy hopeful emotion that sits in the center of our gut and feels like the infatuation that we felt once upon a time. Love isn't that at all. Love is a, an intelligent, thoughtful, sometimes aggressive, sometimes passive. It's informed. It makes wise choices. Love abounds in knowledge and depth of insight. For Paul, for Jesus, love was not an emotion. Love was an action coupled with an understanding that always moved toward others, always. Never retreated, never set up walls, never allowed a difference to come between. 
This is the nature of love. So to this week, this Sunday, we'll wrap up this series in Philippians. And I'm excited about what's coming next, but let's talk about where we're going today and, and what it's about. When Paul begins this last chapter of Philippians, chapter 4, he uses these, this phrase, and that's really kind of where we're at today. Stand firm in the Lord. Now, remember, Paul's in prison. The Philippians are enduring incredible persecution. Life for him, life for them is hard. It's uncertain. He's awaiting trial. He doesn't know what the end result will be. It could mean the end of his life. The Philippians are dealing with their own issues, and Paul is separated from them, their father in the faith. And so Paul says to you and to me, stand firm. And not just stand firm, because, you know, we're all a little bit stubborn, aren't we? And so we know what it means to stand firm. But he says, stand firm, what? What's the next three words? In the Lord. Ah, that's different. Uh, that means that I set aside my stubbornness and I pick up only the cause that Jesus lays down. I pick up only the reasons that he explains. I pick up only the motives that stir in me that are really a result of being saved, knowing his love, and being redeemed and reconciled to him. Don't be mistaken. There are so many causes I would like to pick up right now. Wouldn't you? I mean, don't you feel yourself a little bit motivated to get a little energized about what, don't you have an opinion? Anybody in the room have an opinion about what's going on? Yeah, I've got a few opinions and I, and I, I, I want to act on them. I want to say something. I want to post something. I want to do all kinds of things. And Paul says, I know how you feel. I know you're worried. I know it's uncertain, but stand firm in the Lord. And this is so important that we grasp it. And not only is he going to say it and, and just give you this vague principle, it feels like, what does it mean to stand for it? And he's going to get very detailed as he does. Paul has this incredible way of giving you the overarching principle and then the underlying nuts and bolts. He's going to tell you how it works. And he's not only going to do that, he's going to do it by getting very specific about some people in the Philippian church. It's really a very unique thing that he does here in Philippians 4, and it's worth, it's worth some of our attention. I'm so glad that you're here, uh, not only to see your smiles and to hear uh, your voices singing, but to be just reunited in this way. I'll be honest, it's a little bit different than the reunion that I imagined in my mind. I figured when you came back, we would meet at the door and hug, and we would weep together and we're just a little bit distant, and it feels a little bit like that now and not yet that we all experience right now. You know, we sing this song that the world is broken, but that God is about the business of putting it back together, but we have to live in and deal with and come to terms with the brokenness, and yet we're back together again, and yet we still have to deal with the circumstances that keep us a little bit distant. I'm so glad that Tammy Brown is here today. This is Tammy's, yeah, give her a hand. This is Tammy's first time to be uh, back here in the church since Stan's passing. And, um, and that she would come today means the world to all of us and to me. And, um, and I, I don't know if I broke a barrier, I shouldn't, but I hugged her and, uh, 
And so if either of us get sick, we know who to blame. It'd be me. So Tammy, I'm so glad that you're here. And as we go through these now and not yet moments, we're together and not really. There's a lot of us missing and a lot of us joining online. Still together, but still some distance. As we have hope, but we also see the headlines and the despair then we must lean into the truth of God's word to help guide our path. Otherwise, we will completely lose the plot. We will. And when you lose the purpose of what God is up to, then you lose everything. You miss it all, and we can't do that. There were a couple people in the Philippian church that were about to miss what God is up to. And Paul calls them out. So it's very interesting. He says, stand firm in the Lord. And then he goes into this little story, this brief verse that kind of gives you some background to what's going on. I plead with Euodia. Say it with me, Euodia. Yeah, that's a strange name. If you're going to have a daughter, you know, I recommend it. And I plead with Syntyche, say it with me, Syntyche. So there's two people in the Philippian church that... Paul decides in this letter, grasp this, okay, grasp it, in this letter to name them and call them out because they're not getting along and we don't know why. I wish, you know, this, I don't know if you ever feel like there are things in Scripture that you wish were included, like a little footnote or something. I wish Paul had included why they're not getting along. Wouldn't you like to know? And I think maybe the reason he didn't is because you can imagine why they aren't getting along, can't you? Have you been around church a while? Five minutes is enough to know or maybe guess or suppose or surmise why somebody in church might not be getting along. What could it be? Maybe you, Odia, you know, did something to Syntyche's kids and, or maybe didn't treat them right in the parking lot or maybe she took her seat in the worship center. Maybe, right? Maybe they disagreed on the building committee about the color of carpet. Maybe it was deeper than that. Maybe it involved their families. Maybe it involved something that occurred just between the two women. Maybe they just didn't like each other. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Where you think, you know, I don't really have a reason. I just don't like being around you. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody like that, but maybe you can, right? And so these two people in the context of the Philippian church, are not getting along. And Paul comes along at the very beginning. Just ponder this for a minute. This letter is going to get read in public. This letter is going to be held up in front of the Philippian church in every gathering that they're in for a period of time so that nobody misses Paul's words. And it's, this letter is going to get read, and their names are going to get mentioned. And they're going to be in the room when Paul does this. Not Paul, but when, you know, when it's read, whoever reads it, in the context of their gatherings. So I plead with Euodia, and I plead, he's pleading with both of them. He gives them the same sort of verb that's just saying, I'm, I'm imploring you, please, please, to be of, what, the same mind, and he uses the phrase again, what? In the Lord. And now he sort of laid it down. And he even brings up two other people in the same uh, couple of verses here. He doesn't name his helper and then he mentions a man named Clement, and then he gives a little kind word to these two people. They've always been with me in the gospel. But he's saying, there's a problem, and these two aren't getting along, and it's creating an issue. And we don't know what the issue is. Now, this is just for fun. It's not good 
uh, hermeneutics or whatever, but um, their names are interesting. Euodia means a long journey. That's what it means, uh, at least one of the possible meanings. And syntyche means an accident by chance. So here, just play with me a little bit, all right? I mean, don't build your life on this truth because it's just, a, just pulling it out of a vapor of Scripture. But I'm telling you, if you're going on a long journey with anybody for a period of time, eventually you're going to have an accident by chance, aren't you? I mean, eventually something's going to happen you're not going to get along. Has this happened through the quarantine, through the lockdown for you? Did you find out? that there are people in your family that have habits that you didn't even know existed? Did you find yourself thinking, you know, um, do you have to chew that loud? Did you find yourself thinking, I can read your mind, you can tell by the look on their face, and, you know, we're going to now have words. What occurred in the, you know, presence of your home that hadn't occurred before you spent hours and hours, a long journey together? And as those things show up, then eventually conflict is going to occur. And the conflict means uh, this, this accident or a collision, if you will, that it's time to do business together. And Paul wants them to do business. He wants them to figure it out. I like the message paraphrase of the verse. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to iron out their differences and make up. He doesn't say, or even tip his hand, you know. Euodia's in the right here. Syntyche, if you just get your head in line. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't pick a side. He just says, God doesn't want his children holding grudges. So you ought to ask this question. Is there a dispute that you can think of, one that you even know of, that is worth saying you and I, we're done. We're just going to live in tension and have a fractured relationship. And not only do I know it, not only do you know it, but everyone knows it. Can you think of something that's worth that? Can you decide this side of that conflict that you and I will love each other through all manner of ups and downs? What is Paul encouraging them to do? Decide who's right? Nope. Decide who wins and who loses? Nope. What's he encouraging them to do? To put it aside and decide that love is the thing that is going to make the difference. He's encouraging them to agree in the Lord. That's all. To agree in the Lord. In the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that I will take the Jesus path. It means that if I can deal with my pride or my stubbornness, then I can iron out all manner of differences. If I can deal with my deeply seated opinions that I know I'm right and I'm pretty sure you're wrong, then I can probably love anyone if I'm willing to set that aside. And it means that I'm willing to decide that love is more important than my opinion or your opinion. Love matters more. Because love isn't a wispy emotion that I feel on a given moment. Love is the decision to actively encourage and be kind 
and be generous and behave in loving ways towards somebody else. So if you're like me, anything like me at all, when you have a disagreement, then what I do is I uh, dig my heels in and I back up a bit, put a gulf between me and you. And when that happens, then I'm ready. I'm emotionally ready, have some good distance there to make my case. And if I can make my case well, if I can logic you or argue you, maybe even shame you or anything I need to do to get my point across and bring you to my side, then we can get along because we have reconciled it. Not because we've met in the middle, not because love is one, not because my pride took a hit, not because I set my opinion aside, but because I was right. And let's be honest, the sooner you come to the conclusion that I'm right, the quicker we can get to getting along. Right? But Paul is saying, I want you to agree in the Lord. It means when Paul writes this and calls these two people out in front of the church, he's saying, winning and losing don't matter. Your relationship is what matters. You getting along in the Lord means that you have decided that being right is no longer anywhere near the top of the list and that love matters more. When that happens, our stubbornness just begins to melt away. Our desire to be first can't even be felt anymore. When we decide to agree in the Lord, it doesn't mean that I even have to adopt your opinion. It means that love wins. And when love wins, then we win together. And what an important thing for us to do in this season, through the difficulties that we're experiencing in a culture that we live in, to understand what Paul is asking these two people in the church to do. And let's be honest, you don't even agree with yourself from five years ago, right? Let alone the person who's standing next to you. What happens when we decide to agree in the Lord? The most important things become most important. Grace and mercy reigns. The Spirit has a chance to build connections that wasn't there before. You have learned what it means to follow the path of Jesus. Put yourself last and somebody else first. And when you do that, Paul tells us what occurs. He says this, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And also in this passage, he'll take that phrase and flip it and not just talk about the peace of God, but then he also explains to us what it means to have the God of peace to be with us. I don't know about you, but I long for peace right now. I don't long for, for faked peace or pretend peace. My MO is to look at the mess of the world and decide, yeah, you know, it's not where I live, so it doesn't matter, or that's not my family, or that's not my relationship. My world is good, and all the while, the, the mess of the world presses in, and it cannot be avoided. I long for peace, but not pretend peace. 
I want real peace, don't you? I, mean, I want to have a sense that I understand and know what God is up to and I believe in what he's doing and how it's coming about in the world. And not only that, I want to be a part of it. I want to join him in what he's doing so that whatever I do has some eternal consequences. And that's just not because I'm a pastor. It's because I have the fingerprints of God on me, I, just like you, made in the image of God. I want desperately to be a part of solutions, not problems. Unity, not division. I want that for my life. Don't you want that for you and your neighbors and your friends and your family and for everything that you engage in to know that when you lay your head on the pillow at night that this has been good? I mean, I don't know if we've made progress or not, but at least I love the way Jesus loves. And I began to build connections. This is how we work. And this is what Paul describes in this last chapter, this peace that God gives. And it's not pretend peace. It's peace that lasts. Remember what Jesus said? He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And I don't give as the world gives, you know, pretend or giving it for a while and taking it back. I give peace, Jesus says. And it's real peace. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Wouldn't you like to have a view of the world and who God is that you are able to sense the peace even when it's not there, but it's coming. God's promise is there. No fear, content, believing and knowing that God is taking care of everything and that he's counting on us to engage in the process as we go and that he wants you to be a part of it. So Paul tells us how to come by this peace. And I believe that this, these few verses, the first half of the chapter of Philippians 4, they're not just written to these two people in the church, Philippi. They're written to, of course, the whole church, and they're written to me and you. And again, he's just going to paint a picture that helps us understand how this peace can be mine and how this peace can be yours. Here's what he says in the very first part of this stretch. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Say that with me. Do not be anxious about anything. Easier said than done, isn't it? How long is the list of the things that you've been anxious about? How specific is the list of the things that you've been anxious about? Whether it's been your health or the economy or your security, the health of somebody else, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, not because he believes that if he says that, like a good two-year-old, you'll just do it, but because he knows that anxiety is real and it is everywhere and prevalent and so much of what we tap into is because of our own insecurities. So he says, get a, get a grip on your anxiety, but this is how you do it. And it's not a series of steps and your anxiety ebbs away. It's a lifestyle and a way of training your mind to think. And so he says, do it this way. In every situation, in other words, come to God when you're in trouble and only then, and then you'll find yourself anxious even in good times because there's an unsettledness that you don't know what to do with. Your relationship with God has to be built in the valleys and on the mountaintops and everywhere in between. So this is why Paul says, in every situation, by prayer and petition, two very different words, by praying, conversation with God, and then by asking. 
Not all of your prayers are asks. Not all of your prayers are the list of things that you want God to do for you, but he wants both. Your conversation through the day, Lord, I see you at work. Lord, I want you to be with me. Lord, be with my friends. Ah, there's a petition. Other things that are just normal conversational parts of your deal with God throughout the day. With thanksgiving, this is the peace that we miss. And the peace is so important as you and I practice and live out Philippians 4, 6. And it's this. That in the middle of everything that we're experiencing, as difficult as it is, as uncertain as we are, gratitude must be central. If gratitude isn't central, then, well, you know as a parent, if you have kids, what it's like when your kids wanted more and they didn't understand what they had. Now, God is a better father than we are. God is a better parent than any of us claim to be. But what we love to see in our children is a broad scope and an understanding of what they have before we bless them with more, right? Is that how God works? I don't know. I wish I understood his ways, but they're higher than mine. But I do know that gratitude and thanksgiving is central. So in every situation, good and bad, I have a conversation with God that includes asks and me just wanting to walk with him through my day. I give gratitude and thanks, and then I make it known what I need. And when I do this, then I begin to circle back on this list. Now I'm thankful for the things that he has provided because I did ask. My faith grows and it builds, and as I pay attention to what God is up to and I thank God, him so much for what he's already done, my anxiety begins to ebb away from me. And so then what happens as a result? Well, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. That's how peace comes. It comes by me allowing God to be present in every circumstance in my life. And when Paul says this, don't forget where he is. Where is he? That's right, he's in prison. What's he awaiting? A trial. What could be the outcome of the trial? His execution. So Paul has dealt with his mortality, and he is still dealing with his mortality. In fact, he says earlier in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. In other words, if I keep living, people know Jesus. If I die, I get to be with him. I'm dealing with the truth of my mortality and I'm facing it. And so when he is in prison dealing with this, we can identify with his words because he has to live it in circumstances that you and I have never had to face. And so we trust God with all of the outcomes. And then Paul says this, peace, how does it come? Finally, brothers and sisters, Philippians 4, 8, the very first part of the verse, whatever is, now, I used to know this verse by heart. I, I can almost get it. I, I had to brush up on it a bit. Um, memorized it. Our boys have memorized it. Don has memorized it to get us to, you know, keep this list in mind. Paul's going to give us a list of virtues in just a moment to allow our brains to move towards these virtues so that we don't focus on what we don't have or anxiety or insecurity or the mess of the world or the difficulties or, you know, you fill in the blank, whatever drives you toward not depending on God. 
But before he begins this list, Paul is saying this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever, say it with me, whatever, not like that, not like a teenager does, say whatever, I'm kidding, he's riffing on the teenagers. When he says whatever, he's saying this. Look, I want you to take a look at the broader world around you. And this is so important that you don't miss this. I want you to think about all the things that you see. See, Paul's going through persecution. The Philippians are going through persecution. And when you go through difficulties, like you're going through over the last three months, when you watch our culture get ripped up, the division seems to be political, but it's also moral. It's also centered around the, the people of law enforcement and those that we would other call criminals in other circumstances. When we watch the tension in our society divide and build up, and then the gulf between us and somebody else is large, we start to think us and them. And when we think us and them, we believe that we have to sort of go off to our own little huddle, our own safe corner, with people who think like we think, believe like we believe, and act like we act, look like we look. And when we do that, we believe that we find good only in those places. That's what we think. We believe that we find virtue only in those places, only in people that vote like us, act like us, and think like us. And when Paul uses this word, whatever, and he's going to use it six times in, the, in this verse. When he uses this word, whatever, he's saying, look, I know you're being persecuted. I know you're drawing lines. I know you're establishing camps. Don't do that. There is good everywhere you look. Whatever means everywhere. I want you to look for it hard. I want you to find it in places that are secular, whatever that means. I want you to find it in people that think differently than you, that look differently than you, that act differently than you, in music that you would never listen to, in art that you would never gaze upon. I want you to look for the virtue and the goodness, and he'll give us a list in a minute. I want you to look for it everywhere you can. In fact, he's telling the Philippians, look, don't go hide in your corner I know you think all the beauty can be found there, but that's not true. The world belongs to the Lord and everything in it, everything. So look for this virtue everywhere you possibly can. You're going to need to, because if you don't, you're going to lose hope. And so he says, this word whatever, which means as many as or or. Really, the, the King James is a great, great translation. Whatsoever, wherever you can find it, a great number. There are more. All of these phrases emanate from the etymology of this word that means you can find it almost anywhere you look if you're looking for it. And the truth is, you know this to be true. Whatever you're looking for, you will find, right? Doesn't matter what it is, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, Yes, no, positive, negative. Whatever you're looking for, you are guaranteed to find it. So Paul says, here's what I need you to do. I want you to look for things that are true. I want you to look for things that are noble. I want you to look for things that are right and pure and lovely and admirable. I want you to have your antenna up 
for things that are excellent and for things that are praiseworthy. And you're going to find it. You're going to find it in the suburbs and you're going to find it in the hood. You're going to find it where people are well off. You're going to find it in the middle class. You're going to find it where people are poor. You're going to find it among this style of music and that style of music, in these books and in those books. You're going to find it anywhere you would like to find it. But you're going to find things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. You're going to find it among the places that you are looking. And when you do, when you look with these eyes, when you look with this intention to find it everywhere, here's what happens, Paul says. And the God of peace will be with you. This is peace that will be among you. It exists between us. It exists in me. It exists in you. And you take it with you wherever you go. And when this happens, well, you're taking peace into a world that desperately needs it. I know, just like me, you cannot pretend that we live in a world that is desperately lacking peace. But the peace of God is what the world is thirsty and hungry for and in need of. And if you try to bring peace in the right way, apparently the way Euodia and Syntyche were doing it, I'm right, you're wrong, agree with me, I can argue you into submission, I can shame you into it, I'm smarter than you, I'm more logical than you, clearly I have the facts on my side, half the church, more than half, agrees with me. If you look for peace in this way, by being right, then you will never find peace. You only find those who agree and the rest will flee. That's not what God has called us to. All that will do is worsen the divide. Come on, look around and pay attention. How many people are worsening the divide? How many folks are deepening the gulf between those who have and those who don't, between those who agree and those who disagree? How many? So God has called you and I to bring peace, to bring peace where there is no peace. Now, this sounds incredible, doesn't it? The peace of God being with us. But the truth is, is you're going to walk out these doors and you're going to open up your phone and read some news, and you'll think, I don't know what he's talking about in there, but it's not happening out here. I don't know what he thinks is going to happen in this world. I think it feels like the whole world is on fire. And it's just going to get worse. And if that's the case, then know this, that the gospel, the words of Scripture, even the writings of Paul, they all agree that the world we're in is simply a mess. And so let me finish with this thought from Philippians chapter 4. No, let me go back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, I'll get in a second, third try, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So here's what Paul says. And then I'm going to wrap us up. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, Paul's about to say a thing or two about what it means to be reconciled. And based on what's going on in our culture and around us and even in our own city, it feels important to point this out as we wrap up and then pray for all of us. 
He says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. In other words, I don't see you as other people see you. I don't see you as a client or as a, a voter. I don't see you as somebody that holds a political position. I don't see you as a problem. I don't see you as a criminal. I don't see you as a burden on society. I don't regard you the way other people would see you. How do I see you? Well, I see you differently. As the image of God created by him for his glory. And I see you that way even if you behave in a way that makes that seem untrue, even if you act or believe in a way that I think is reprehensible, I regard no one from a worldly point of view. And then he says this. So we want to know that all of this is from God, and God reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of, big word, say it with me, reconciliation. And that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins. What? Is that true for you? Yep. Is it true for the people you read articles about in the last five days? Yep. Is it true for everyone that will sin today? Yep. Is it true for everyone that will sin this week, even you? Say it with me. Yep. This is how God reconciles is he doesn't see us as our sin. He sees us as we have been created. And this isn't just true for the people that we love or agree with or enjoy being around. It's true for everyone. In fact, love isn't love if it's not challenged. Love isn't love if it's not made more difficult in the way I live it out and practice it. You cannot bring God's peace into the world that Paul promises in Philippians if you don't see reconciliation this way. And it doesn't matter who the sins belong to, whether they belong to protesters or police officers. It doesn't matter. What matters is that God is bringing about reconciliation, the entire world to himself through Jesus. And then he says this. So it's not just what he's doing, but it's what we do. And he has committed to us the message of, say it with me, reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We belong to him. And we do work for him. Paul doesn't use this word ambassador lightly. He knows what it means. He knows that it is a position and it is a post that is appointed by the highest authority. This is why in Philippians he says that we are citizens of what? Heaven. And Paul understands this deeply. He's a Roman citizen, and that very truth has gotten him out of trouble several times. But he doesn't claim his Roman citizenship unless it benefits him in a legal situation that will get him out of jail. The only time he does it is then. All other times he is simply a citizen of heaven. And we have been made ministers, ambassadors of reconciliation. That's me and that's you. So as we live this out this week, here's what I want to wrestle with. And I want you to ask, and we're going to pray together a bit, and I'm going to send you out these doors in the back, okay? Um, so when we leave, uh, and as I pray, 
Uh, you just kind of be prepared to head out the metal doors behind us. And as we do that, we'll make room for the people that are coming in for the 11 o'clock service, okay? Uh, let me guide you through the prayer time. We'll go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, this is our hope and our prayer that we would live out this truth, that we would be ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, that we would seek to have first and foremost your peace and you as the God of peace present with us and in us, that when we bring peace to each other, that we would do so in a way that glorifies you. And Lord, our hope and our prayer is that we would never regard anyone, our friends, our family, the people we read about, the people we even want to sit in judgment of from a worldly point of view, that when we do so, we are not loving with the love that you have given to us. So Lord, somewhere along the way, you decide to not count our sins against us, and we pray that we would love in that same manner to the people around us. Our community is in need of it. Our world is in need of it. For goodness sakes, Lord, our, our families are in need of it. And as we live this way, would you guide us down that path? We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. And we all pray together and we say, amen.